you know, this goes back to the lived experience part. If Mm -hmm. you are not a blind person and you're designing an experience for blind people, um, there's a lot you don't know about um, what the needs are. And so you can do a ridiculous amount of research and Mm -hmm. find out what the needs are, or you can ask, uh, you know, you can ask a few blind people what the basic needs are and then design from from there and, you know, spend, spend your research time doing the the refinements to make it delightful rather than doing the basics to make it functional. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Disability is the mother of all invention. That's a direct quote from our guest today, Joss Meal and he would know all about invention and disability. He has invented, you described, the talking tactile pen, T-map, and wearer braille. In his current position as Amazon's principal accessibility developer, he has not slowed down at all. He developed Alexa's show and tell feature, as well as voice view. Both of these help visually impaired people live independently by using voice-activated technology in the home. This amazing work at Amazon earned him MacArthur Fellowship in 2021. For more information about JAWS and Amazon Accessibility Initiatives, please feel free to visit amazon.com accessibility. In the meantime, here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Joshua. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so, so happy to talk to you today. Oh, yeah. And by the way, congratulations for the MacArthur Fellowship Award. Thank I'm you. so exciting. It is very exciting. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an incredible honor. I, I'm still sort of, um, I'm still getting used to it. And, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's an extraordinary, uh, sort of life changing event. So I really, um, Thank you for your congratulations. Yeah. yeah, well, definitely don't get used to it because I think it's really special. <laughs> Thank you. So I thought you, I mean, you know, one of the things that I learned, you know, uh, about your journey, I thought you have really an amazing story and I'm so inspired on how you overcome challenges that life put you through. And I was wondering if you can give us your background and the journey that takes you to where you are today. Sure. I, I mean, you know, um, you you use the word overcome, which is a you know, it's it's a, a word that has a lot of you know history to it. And um, as a person with a disability, I tend not to use that word just mm-hmm. because not there's nothing really wrong with it. Just because it is, um, uh, it, it's such a it's such a common trope in disability. You know, I'm I'm blind, mm-hmm. and so I haven't really overcome anything. What I've done yeah. is grapple with the the world that I have and uh-huh. and manage manage it with the tools that are given me and the tools that uh, I'm able to develop myself so you know strategies and uh, and approaches and and a story is what I have rather than any kind of uh, overcoming of anything I was um, I was born sighted I became blind when I was four and so I've lived my whole you know my whole life from you know preschool on as a blind person. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, one of the most important parts of that journey is a supportive and, 
encouraging environment. And I certainly had that from my family and from many of my teachers and uh, my community. I did not have a lot of blind people around me growing up. So I didn't really grow up with the understanding that I had a disability and that there was a disability community that I could connect with. But I found them when I went to college. And it was that was that also was a transformative, extraordinary experience, not unlike most young people when they go to college finding their tribe, you know, finding mm-hmm. the people that they can connect with. It's a very common thing. Mine happened to be disability and a bunch of blind people who were not only, you know, people I could learn from, but people I really loved and respected and thought were funny and cool and mm-hmm. And, and you know, a, a great community to be part of. So it's at that time that I really became comfortable or started, started becoming more comfortable with my own disability and blindness. And really, uh, that's where I think the, the journey began. Um, but, but the early part of my life is so important, even though I wasn't kind of aware of my disability identity, yet I was still living it. I still didn't want my disability to um, define or limit who I was or what I could do. And my family and teachers were all extremely supportive and encouraging me to do pretty much anything I wanted to try and figuring out how they could help me do that. So, um, you know, I don't know how you know, when you say journey, uh, it, it, it has taken me all the way up to today. So I could keep talking about, you know, what what I've been through and what I've done. But really, the 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 most important thing is to not, I feel my my most lucky, the, the pieces I am most lucky to have happened onto are not being limited by myself or by the folks around me to, um, to be more optimistic and assume that things are going to work out rather than being afraid of what might happen if things don't work out and and to to go for it and of course um i have a lot of other privileges besides i'm male i'm ostensibly white and it's a uh it's you know so there are lots of <laughs> lots of un, you know undefinable advantages that i have had in addition to uh, my encouraging family. Um, and, and those are just pieces of luck. Those aren't anything that I did to deserve them. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, I, I found that the outlook that you, when you say that, I think it's very, um, contagious. Uh, and what, you know, sometimes people can become less optimistic as they go through hardship. And what do you, is this a personality? Do you think that you're more an optimistic optimistic person or do you think this is something that you consciously telling yourself how, is there like a tool that you tell yourself on how to be more optimistic? Because I think it, it's a better way of living life that way. It is not a choice. It's just a disposition, I think. I don't, uh, I am naturally prone to optimism and sort of, you know, when I encounter a problem, I, even if I don't understand how to do the problem, I do the parts of it that I do understand. And then I look at it again to see if it's any, you know, if I understand it any better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I 
you know, try to figure out what pieces of it I don't understand and learn about them so that I can address them. And that's sort of how I approach mm-hmm. all problems. And I, I feel like I have been, um, you know, life is, life is difficult in all sorts of different ways, not just in a disability sense. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I tend to roll with it a little yeah. better than, than, um, than some do. And I feel lucky about that too. That's great. So you're definitely in very passionate about developing technology to serve the blind, but where's you, have you always thought about that? This is the area that you're interested in doing, or is this something that came about when you were as well, in, in college? In growing up, I always wanted to be a scientist. I always wanted to, um, I've, I've always been fascinated by technology and by machines and, and, uh, and I've always been really interested in space and, uh, space exploration and space research. And I studied, uh, I went to UC Berkeley as an undergrad to study Mm -hmm. physics and, you know, wanted to study physics because I felt like physics is sort of at the root of the sciences that we, uh, that we know. And, Mm -hmm. You know, math is, you know, math, of course, is, well, uh, I mean, you've got things like chemistry and biology that, you know, are, are basically physics at their, at their hearts. And, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to study physics and I wanted to become a space scientist and study the solar system and uh, planetary physics and, um, you know, maybe design spacecraft and stuff like that. And while I was in college, you know, my whole life, I have always needed to figure out how I wanted to do the things I wanted to do. Most of the things that are interesting are untrodden ground, or at least, you know, prior to the internet, like now you can Google anything, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, but when I was, when I was young, we had no, uh, resource like that. And so a lot of the things, even if blind people had been through them before, were being invented by me and my family for the first time mm-hmm. because we were just we were just doing it as it came. So uh, I have always been somebody who just sort of you know if I want to do a particular science project first I would need to figure out how I was going to get access to the materials and the tools. If I wanted to take a math class, I would need to figure out how we were going to transcribe the graphics and and communicate about the the um the visuals mm-hmm. so being a blind person in fact being a person with a disability is kind of a constant uh effort of innovation and creation i think in many ways disability drives innovation in so many different ways uh and this is sort of at its heart the people who you know we 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 have this aphorism in English that necessity is the mother of invention, mm-hmm. and uh, and disability is is the mother of all necessity. So uh, so there's really a um, uh, if you are a, a person with a disability who does things, uh, you will almost always have to innovate and create ways to do those things. So that was in my blood already mm-hmm. coming to college. When I came to college. I loved physics and was, you know, not a um, not an extraordinary student, but I enjoyed it. 
And I got a job while I was an undergrad working at a software company that was designing screen readers for blind people because just as I had done my whole life in college, I needed to figure out how I was going to do the things that I wanted to do. And one of those things involved using computers. And, you know, consumer mm-hmm. level computers were fairly young at that time. I was, this was the late 80s. And screen readers, which are the um, software tools that blind people use to access the information that uh, computers display, a screen reader, you know, it usually uses text to speech. Uh, sometimes it uses refreshable Braille, which is, um, you know, mechanical device that pops dots up and down dynamically, depending on what you want to display. It's a computer-driven display device. It's uh, only one line of Braille at a time because you've got so many moving parts, but it's a, it's a brilliant uh, technology. So screen readers use text-to-speech and Braille displays to tell you what's on the screen. And they were young at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and computers with graphical interfaces were just coming into the consumer market. Macintosh, uh, it was even before Windows existed. And this small company in Berkeley was the first company to create a graphical, uh, a screen reader that would work with a graphical com- computer. It worked with mm-hmm. a Mac, and which was extraordinary because uh, we didn't, a lot of blind people were worried that the advent of graphical computers meant that blind people were going to be locked out of computers forever. But right. it didn't turn out that way. It turned out that uh, you can create a screen reader and the company that invented it was right there in Berkeley and a friend of mine was working there. And he said, hey man, come, Come, you know, help us with tech support. Uh, you'd be great. And so I got an undergrad, you know, I got a job, a part-time job as an undergrad doing that work. And that's really, um, I realized at that time that uh, that I had a lot more to contribute in the area of accessibility than mm-hmm. I probably did in the area of space sciences. Of course, I loved space sciences, but there were, you know, thousands of people that could probably do that kind of creative work Whereas if I wanted the tools for blind people to be to, to be what they should be and could be, they needed to be invented and innovated by a, uh, a blind person who really understood what the needs were and understood what the, what the tools could do and could, mm-hmm. uh, could you know, create tools that were really meaningful. Otherwise, you, you're sort of, if you leave sighted people to invent the tools that blind people need, they're going to you know, they're going to miss a lot of key requirements because they're just not blind. They don't know, you know, they're not in it. They don't use the tools. If you don't use the tool, you don't know how to, you, you don't know how to design the tool. Um, and unless, you know, unless you put in a a huge amount of, you know, of course it's possible. You can always, uh, do a lot of market research, (laughs) a lot of research, but by that time you're going to be, you know, you might as well be a user of the tool anyway. So, yeah. Uh, so it's a huge advantage to me in designing tools for blind and visually impaired and people with disabilities to be a blind person and to be part of a, a broad disability community. Um, you know, not only do I hang out with blind people, but I know, uh, you know, I live in Berkeley, which is the heart of the disability rights movement from the 70s. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a strong... Uh, a strong hangover in Berkeley of of that disability rights movement. There's a lot of people around who uh, were active in that movement. A lot mm-hmm. of people with disabilities. A lot of people who came to Berkeley because 
of that history. And it's just, um, it's a, it's an amazing, uh, community of people who are deaf, people who use wheelchairs, people who, uh, have, uh, cognitive and motor impairments of all kinds. And, um, and to, to sort of be steeped in that, in that community, mm -hmm. um, gives me a, a leg up as it were on, designing uh universal design and of course i don't just design stuff from my own mind and heart even though i am blind even though i am disabled you know you have to do research you have to make sure that the things you're building are going to work for everybody that they're intended for and um, <laughs> that's not just a that's not just me that's not a user right. of you know it's not a, a a user population of one it's a user right. population of 15% of, of the entire world has some kind of disability. So, uh, yeah. it's, it's a lot of, um, it's, you know, you need to be, you need to be just as careful and scientific in your design of, of technology when you're blind as you do when you're sighted, but it is, uh, you can start from a higher level. You don't need to mm -hmm. ask the fundamental questions. Right. Right. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Tell us more about, you know, the, the work that you're doing uh, on the tactile maps. I think as uh, somebody with who are not blind, oftentimes we took things for granted. Um, and so like what you're saying, there are certain things we don't think about that um, that could serve to uh, the blind people better. And I thought yeah. the tactile map is amazing. What yeah, the done. tactile. So I have always loved maps. Maps are a, a a deep fondness I have. But you know, you can sum up the the problem that is that I'm trying to solve, or the the problem that I keep solving, or addressing, or trying to solve in different ways, is all about access to information. Access to information is essentially what I do at every you know you you. If you scratch the surface of any of my projects, mm -hmm. it's it you get to access to information almost immediately. And the the maps are a great example of information that blind people did not have ready access to. In you know, so they maps are a way of representing spatial information in a in a tactile way, in a way that you can touch and. A lot of the time you'll, you know, you'll hear or I hear people say things like, oh, maps are so visual or, you know, <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, graphics, you know, you, you know, the, you know, it's so visual. And a lot of the time what they actually mean is not that it's visual, but that it's spatial <laughs> because, you know, vision is a powerful spatial percept. Vision is, uh, you know, our most powerful spatial percept as, as humans. And so we we get them conflated. We tangle them up, the issues mm -hmm. of visual versus spatial, very often because we're so accustomed to 
taking in spatial information visually, but really it's spatial information. And there are other ways to represent and, uh, and um, take in that information. So when you create a, a tactile map, what you're doing is you're creating a spatial representation of a map, but it's one that you can feel. And of course, you know, lots of people have seen relief maps that you can touch and, you know, you can feel where the mountain ranges are. And those are mm-hmm. cool. Um, but the maps that I design are um, not just for kind of coolness, but for actually communicating information about um, where things are relative to one another. The maps that I've focused on most heavily are street maps and creating technology that automates the creation of tactile street maps. And I did this in early, um, you know, uh, 2000, you know, three or four is when I started the tactile maps automated production project. It's called TMAP. Mm-hmm. And it's now a, um, it's now a, a project at the San Francisco Lighthouse where you can order a tactile map of any street, you know, any neighborhood in the world that you want, and they will send it to you in the mail. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Or you can, you can even, uh, uh, go onto their website and, and and download and print out your own tactile map if you have a Braille embosser. How many people has been using this uh, T-map? Thousands and thousands. Um, it it is it is a very popular um, it is a very popular service, mm-hmm. and um, you know there's a long history to blind people and tactile maps. Um, I didn't invent tactile maps by any stretch. Um, I just invented a way to take existing geospatial data for streets and automate that process of creating, turning the street map information into a tactile map with Braille labels that's designed in in a meaningful way so that blind people can read it, so that it's legible, so that it mm-hmm. makes sense, so that it's tactically salient, um, all of that stuff. And so that when... Once you learn how to read these maps, you can read any of the maps. Um, one big problem with tactile maps historically has been that every map designer has created their own sort of system, their own code. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing any blind person has to do when they sit down and look at a map is figure out what the heck the code means. And, and so there's no, there's no standardization or anything like that. So I have created, in, in a way, I've created a de facto standard by creating a, a tool that, that spits out more maps than anybody else can spit out. Uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, so my T-maps are now the most prevalent uh, representation of, of, of street maps in the world. And, and so it, it has become a de facto standard. People don't need to relearn every, uh, you know, relearn, mm-hmm. you know, with every new map that they look at. So it's yeah. really, it's really cool. But, but maps again are just a great example of, of spatial information. I'm also obsessed with, you know, charts and graphs and turning those into tactile <laughs> representations and also, um, something called sonification, which is a way of, using sound to represent data. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you have, for example, uh, you know, if you're taking a calculus course and you want to know what a particular curve looks like, um, a lot of people don't have, uh, you know, they don't have a Braille embosser. They don't have somebody to draw the, the, the graph for them and have it be a, a tactile drawing. So mm-hmm. using sound, um, 
using sound is another great way to uh, to turn data into something that can be that can be taken in by a blind person. Do you have a good? Ex- do you have some example on how that works? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, for example, you know, you might have a parabola. You you know that uh, uses pitch to um, to represent the graph, and then uh, it uh, you know so you hear it and you use space you know, stereo space as the mm-hmm. x-axis. So the, the y-axis is pitch, the x-axis is time and space. And uh, and so you hear it, uh, a high pitch on the left coming, you know, coming down, getting lower and lower. It might, you know, cross the x-axis. And, uh, you know, I've designed uh, tools so that it, you know, you hear a tick when it crosses the x-axis. And mm-hmm. then it goes goes down and comes back up. And you hear it disappear into the high frequencies on the right-hand side. So that's a, a, a classic sonification scheme for uh, for single-valued uh, mm-hmm. functions. And I, I actually designed, you know, I used a tool called MATLAB in grad school, uh, which is used by a lot of engineers and scientists for um, for numerical processing and for data visualization. And I came into my lab at grad school and everybody was using MATLAB. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I could program it, but I couldn't see any of the visualization. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things I did in grad school, again, you know, uh, necessity, disability, (laughs) and invention, I had to write a set of, of auditory display tools, sonification tools for MATLAB so that I could do my research. Um, so that's, you know, um, yeah, not... so that's interesting. So there's a more like you create technology that can also help you communicate with others and others to communicate with you that you won't be able to see through the sound, uh, in a graphic visual way, but it's not really, uh, it's more like spatial way. Like you're saying, you're, uh, it's interesting for me. I never thought about it that way until yeah. you mentioned it. Um, so tell me more about your work now at Amazon. So yeah, for for you know about you know for fifteen or twenty years, I worked in academia. I was a uh, a researcher at a nonprofit research institute in San Francisco called the Smith Kettlewell Eye Research Institute. I did uh, the vast majority of of my work was done there. You know all the TMAP work and the video accessibility work um, in twenty. 19, I uh, made the choice to move to industry. I came to Amazon to be a principal accessibility researcher in the devices group at Amazon. And really, the um, the reason I made the change is because I really love, um, I love building cool stuff for blind people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved what I could do at Smith Kettlewell, but it wasn't really making... I wanted to. I wanted my things to reach more people, mm-hmm. and um, and so Amazon is an extraordinary, uh, you know, way to have impact. Uh, we're all, uh, you know, so many people, including customers with disabilities, are using Amazon services and devices, and right. so uh, so to make, you know, to make an impact on Amazon devices means. Making uh, making an impact in an enormous number of blind people's lives and people with other disabilities. So I came to Amazon to um, to help with the accessibility work on their devices. One of the first things 
I got involved with when I came to Amazon was the development of their show and tell experience, which is on um, the uh, Echo devices, Echo Show and um, the Echo devices with cameras. And basically what it, it's a, it's a product identifier. Um, product identification is a, a thing that um, has been uh, worked on in many ways, in many places for a long time. Uh, you know, in the 90s, people, you know, we were using, you know, uh, you, you know, you could buy a barcode scanner uh, for, you know, for $1,200 that would, you know, that you could use on a product. And if if the barcode, if you could find the barcode and if the barcode was in the database, it would tell you what the product was. And, mm-hmm. um, and so since that time, product identification has been getting sort of better and better and more and more available, uh, you know, cheaper and cheaper. There are a number of uh, mobile experiences that uh, do product identification, but we really wanted um, we wanted the Alexa devices to be able to tell people what they were, you know, what products they were using. It, it, um, mm. uh, it's very common to have an Echo device on your kitchen counter, and so for a blind person, if there's an Echo device on your kitchen counter, why shouldn't you just be able to hold up a can and say, you know, mm. what am I holding, and have her tell you uh, what you know what that can is, and so. Right. Um, so I, my, my work on, um, on that experience was really, you know, as a, as a researcher, my, my role is really to help teams at Amazon, um, understand the customer uses and, you know, understand how people are going to use the products that we develop and to mm-hmm. understand sort of what, what features are necessary and, and to do, you know, necessary user testing and design refinements to really make that experience not just not just something that works but something that that is delightful something that works really well yeah um and so uh so you know there were a number of of features that i helped the team uh understand were necessary and um a number of of ways that the product uh really is is one of the best uh experiences of its kind for example you know um Rather than having to choose, you know, uh, between product identification and OCR, um, show and tell does both at the same time. So mm-hmm. if you hold up a can and it, uh, it can recognize the, you know, exactly what the can is, it goes to its database and it tells you, you know, all about, you know, that can of, of, you know, progresso soup or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it can't recognize exactly what it is, it just tells you some more, you know, it tells you, I, you know, I recognize the Progresso brand and I see the words chunky chicken on the label. <laughs> so, you know, it didn't get an exact match maybe, but <laughs> it got, uh, it got the all the information that I might need. And so one of the things that I helped the team understand was you don't need an exact match Mm-hmm. to build a really cool, useful, very helpful product. Um, you know, yeah. they they were, when I, you know, when I arrived, they were very worried that they couldn't, you know, that they weren't getting exact matches all the time. And so I was <laughs> like, no, you don't need to get an exact match. You just need to provide useful information. And so, you know, um, these are the insights that I yeah. help provide. Um, you, you know, I've also... the practicality of it exactly. too. Because and... a lot of the time, when a when a you know if an engineer or a designer doesn't 
you know, this goes back to the lived experience part. If Mm -hmm. you are not a blind person and you're designing an experience for blind people, um, there's a lot you don't know about um, what the needs are. And so you can do a ridiculous amount of research and Mm -hmm. find out what the needs are, or you can ask, uh, you know, you can ask a few blind people (laughs) what the basic needs are and then design from from there and, you know, spend, spend your research time doing the, the refinements to make it delightful rather than doing the basics to make it functional. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, it almost sounds like you have a really fun job at Amazon. Um, I have, I have not been this happy in, you know, this, this is the happiest I've been professionally for many, many years. There is no shortage of exciting, challenging, interesting problems to work on in accessibility or at Amazon. And, you know, keep in mind that, you know, accessibility is something that uh, it's not just an Amazon problem. It's an everybody problem, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we're all, you know, all the big tech companies are working on accessibility to one extent, you know, to in in one way or another. (laughs) And we're all, you know, we're all making uh, really great progress. Um, And it's a thrill to be able to, you know, make progress at Amazon because there's so there's there's so many you know it's not just uh Amazon's not just one thing Amazon is a lot of things and so yeah. you know <laughs> they touch everybody's life now yeah there's the Alexa experience there's the shopping experience there's you know there's the devices and you know the tablets and the fire TVs yeah that, you know that we have a we have you know we have screen readers for the fire TV and for the Fire tablet, so that you know that's another part of my, um, you know, where I contribute. And um, I mean, there's just you know, and then one of my deep loves is video accessibility, where I've done a lot of uh, a lot of fun work. And uh, lo and behold, um, I get to uh, you know work with the people in Prime Video who are mm-hmm. doing audio description and other accessibility work and. Wow. And um, advise them on yeah. on how to make their product delightful for people with disabilities, including blind people. That's great. So I know we are up on time. Um, before we end, um, many of our listeners are engineers, entrepreneurs, innovators. What are the things that you think that you can uh, tell them it, uh, if they're interested in addressing challenges? Or, or technology you know, for the blind people. There's there's so much energy out there in the world, and there's so you know it's so much fun to invent stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so much fun to invent stuff. My my encouragement to the folks out there in the world is to um, before you invent before you go inventing something, find out what the needs are. Uh, it's it's one thing to assume what the needs are, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but it's it's a waste of everybody's time if you invent something that it turns out isn't actually addressing a, a problem that needs fixing. Um, and a lot of the time, because disability is so widely misunderstood and yeah. is so widely misunderstood, um, it's very common for sighted engineers to to sort of jump in and start inventing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that I would suggest is, um, learn about disability, learn about accessibility. Don't just learn about what the requirements are, learn about why those requirements mm-hmm. exist. 
Mm. And um, the best way to do that is to not study, you know, there are lots of, you know, guidelines and standards mm-hmm. out there in the world. Don't study those. Um, learn about disability itself. Learn about people with disabilities. And from that, you will, um, you'll see what the, what the needs are and how to invent things. This is something mm-hmm. I call, uh, I call accessibility from first principles. Don't, mm-hmm. don't study the books, study <laughs> the people. And um, the best way uh, I the best way I can recommend right now to learn about disability is to watch Crip Camp. It's a great movie on Netflix. It's a documentary about the disability rights movement and the people, some of the people that um, that were uh, instrumental in making that movement happen and their um, their growing up experience. And it's uh, it doesn't uh, capture everyone's. Mm-hmm. disability experience, but it's an extraordinary, um, it, it's a, a great investment of one hour of your time to mm-hmm. learn an enormous amount about disability as it really exists. Okay. It's called Crip Camp, you said. Crip Camp, Netflix. Okay. I should check it out. Absolutely. And last question before I let you go is, who's your hero and why? Oh my goodness. I have a lot of heroes. Um, my Greatest heroes are people who imagine things, um, people who imagine things and share their uh, their creations with the world. I'm a, an avid science fiction reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that science fiction, you know, talking about, uh, you know, invention and creativity and necessity, science fiction um, thinks through a lot of the problems that uh, that we are having or that we will have before we get there. And so by being a good science fiction reader, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a great way to sort of uh, lead the target on, on technology needs. Ursula K. Le Guin is one of my greatest heroes. She is, um, she is a fabulous writer. She has an extraordinary imagination and she is an incredibly generous uh, personality. And uh, we, uh, she died uh, in the last couple of years, and uh, I still am sad about it. Wow. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your uh, passion, your excitement uh, about innovation for blind people. And uh, thank you for your time again. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.